Hello and welcome to this podcast from the BBC World Service. Please let us know what you think and tell other people about us on social media. Podcasts from the BBC World Service are supported by advertising. Hello and welcome to News Hour from the BBC World Service, coming to you live from London. I'm James Kamarasamy. And later in the programme, could poor working conditions in garment factories have contributed to the spread of coronavirus in the English city of Leicester? Many of these factories are very small. They're in often run-down buildings, very little ventilation. What we found increasingly is that the windows are blocked up so people can't see what's going on, which really means there's a stuffy environment. The workers are stuck there for the whole of their shift. There's no way that those factories can do social distancing. We begin, though, with the United States, where presidents traditionally use Independence Day, July the 4th, to beat the patriotic drum. But on Saturday, Donald Trump used a speech to give that patriotism an election year political slant. Addressing an audience outside the White House, Mr Trump accused the protest movement, which has taken to the streets in the wake of George Floyd's killing, of trying to destroy the country. In every age... There have always been those who seek to lie about the past in order to gain power in the present. Those that are lying about our history, those who want us to be ashamed of who we are, are not interested in justice or in healing. Their goal is demolition. Our goal is not to destroy the greatest structure on earth, what we have built the United States of America. Shortly after he spoke, a statue of one of the people he had referred to, the explorer Christopher Columbus, became the latest to be pulled down by protesters. In an echo of what had happened in the English city of Bristol a few weeks ago, the Columbus statue in Baltimore wasn't just toppled, but tipped into the harbour. Well, joining me now to discuss this is Dr. Leslie Vinjamuri, Director of the US and America's Programme at the International Affairs Think Tank Chatham House. Uh, Leslie, that speech, what did you make of it? Um, Campaign rally or classic Independence Day speech? Well, clearly not the latter. And this is a president who is really stoking division. He's using this to rally uh, the hardcore of his base. He's really very much out of step with what's going on across America on the streets where we've had uh, between 15 and 26 million Americans say that they've taken part in one form or another in the protests that that have uh, been spawned by the brutal killing of, of George Floyd. But the speech, you know, the speech at Mount Rushmore and in Washington by the president were phenomenally uh, packed with division and really going back in some ways to the very uh, beginning of his presidency when he talked about American carnage. The difference then, of course, was that the president was really targeting immigrants from Mexico, talking about building his wall. And now he's trying to pit Americans against Americans. It's um, not not what we've ever seen before on July 4th from a president. You say he's out of step, but he clearly thinks he's in step with what he keeps tweeting about the silent majority. What are the polls saying about how people feel about what's happening in the country at the moment? 
Well, you know, if you look simply at the one measure of the polls is how popular is the president. And he's polling in most polls about eight or nine percent down from Joe Biden in some as much as 12 percent. So, you know, just at the level of public support across the country, um, he's doing very, very poorly and poorly by historical standards. Um, but of course, there's a lot in play right now. So many of his supporters have been older Americans, white Americans. Some of those people are deeply worried about their health in a country that now has um, the devastating numbers of more than 122,000 Americans who have died from the coronavirus, over 11% unemployment, um, and an infection rate that looks to be growing. And, you know, the, the story of the coronavirus in the early days was that it was hitting the blue states, and it was hitting the blue pockets of the red states. Now it's hitting the red states. And what we're seeing, which is interesting, is that even those who have been very loyal to the president, the Republican governor of Texas, are, you know, really saying to their populations, you must wear your mask. You know, there's a real reversal and a recognition. And again, if you watch those speeches, the president really didn't talk about the gravest crisis that faces the country today, which is the coronavirus crisis. So, so he's, tr- he, he's trying to reach into the past, isn't he? I mean, he's talking now about a national park of heroes, but you're uh, belief is that what is happening in the present day and, and the health crisis that America is facing will ultimately decide this election? I think so. I mean, Americans right now are calling for unity. They're calling for leadership to respond to the gravest public health and economic crisis that the country has faced in decades. And they're packed with enthusiasm for um, demanding change, demanding equality. I mean, these things are separate, but they're all coming together in a really phenomenal moment. So he's, um, there's clearly a segment of the population that feels uh, very strongly about, um, differently from what looks to be a majority view in the U.S. about the Black Lives Movement. And he's pushing back against, he's trying to enervate that, to energize that. Um But the problem, of course, is, you know, does division sell? And I think at the moment, because of the scale of the public health crisis, division is not having the selling effect that this president seems to think it will. Leslie, thanks very much. Dr. Leslie Vinjamuri there, director of the US and America's program at Chatham House. The new security law for Hong Kong, which came into force this week, is already having an impact. At least one leading pro-democracy campaigner, Nathan Law, has left the territory. And now books written by prominent activists such as Joshua Wong have disappeared from the shelves of the city's libraries. One of the missing authors is the scholar Horace Chin, known as Wan Chi. He has been called the godfather of localism for his evocative writing on the special essence of the city-state. And he spoke on Saturday to NewsHour's Lise Doucette. It's quite a sad thing to see my books by Joshua as well as another uh, legislator, which are not no longer available for public reading. So it's a sad thing because censorship is quite unusual in Hong Kong, unless for some obviously uh, sexual things, but um, not this kind of political writing. Do you think this is now the new reality of Hong Kong after the new security law passed by Beijing? I think so. They're coming, and they're coming more and more obviously. After freedom of speech, after books, after posters being posted on uh, in restaurants as well as uh, in the street, and uh, flags saying that uh, Hong Kong should be uh, free, or even a wearing T-shirt that simply say "Free Hong Kong." 
So uh, maybe I have to print books later, perhaps outside Hong Kong, say in Taiwan. Do you worry about your own safety? Uh, not yet. But uh, I think they will come after me. They were increasing the pressure bit by bit by testing uh, the reaction of Hong Kong people as well as the international world. And it is the international reach of the new law that is causing concern beyond Hong Kong's borders. I've been hearing more about that from Bing Ling, a professor of Chinese law at the University of Sydney in Australia. This law criminalizes conduct that occurs not only in Hong Kong, but outside Hong Kong as well. So according to this law, people anywhere in the world, whether Hong Kong residents or not, can be caught by this law if they commit the criminal conduct uh, that this law prohibits. So this law has a global reach. Global reach, not just in terms of, as you say, Hong Kong citizens then, but global Citizens, people from any country can be caught up in it. One of the most striking clauses in this law is its Article 38, which says people who are not Hong Kong permanent residents who commit crimes under the law will be governed by this law, which essentially means they will be criminally liable. They can be subject to extradition if possible, or they can be arrested or prosecuted when they enter into Hong Kong and China. What would you say are the implications of that? Although the law is written to cover everyone, uh, I suppose it's primarily the overseas Chinese. And as we know, in the past year, there have been numerous protests, events all around the world in support of Hong Kong's protest movement. And what this extraterritorial provision does, apparently, is to deter these people and make sure that these people will think twice uh, before they go onto the street and demonstrate their support. How does that extraterritorial provision fit in with international law? There is a principle under international law on protective jurisdiction. It is a principle that is quite generally recognized. Many states around the world uh, recognize this principle. So in other words, a state can apply its law to foreign conduct, conduct by foreigners in a foreign country, if the conduct damages the vital interest and national security of that state. What this Hong Kong law is worrisome is that its criminal law provisions can be quite pervasive. So, for instance, there is a crime of advocating independence of Hong Kong even by peaceful means. There's also a provision that would prohibit any uh, proposal or support for any sanctions against China, whether sanctions are justified uh, or not. And these provisions, if they apply uh, in the way that the law says, virtually means, for instance, any legislators who vote for a sanction bill against China could, in theory at least, be caught by this law. So what a British, an Australian, an American legislator could then be caught up if they were to pass through Hong Kong and arrested, could they? Well, literally, under this law, yes, they can. They will need to think twice if they travel to China. Although, realistically, uh, I don't think this law is going to be enforced against foreigners in too many cases. And what about journalists, for example? Could that also get them caught up in this law? There's no exception for journalistic 
writings or, or, or freedom. A journalist who's writing advocates, let's say, Hong Kong or Taiwan or uh, other parts of China's independence could be construed to constitute uh, instigating or inciting the act of secession. And to that extent, uh, that could be uh, treated as, as criminal uh, under this law. What about the practicalities, though, of enforcing this? If you're, say, a, a Chinese student in the UK who holds up a banner saying Hong Kong independence, realistically, is the Chinese state going to pursue you and, and try and extradite you? Extradition in this kind of situation is not likely to be successful because the person's conduct in UK or in a foreign country would probably be lawful under the local law. You need the so-called dual criminality uh, in order to have extradition. So in other words, the conduct needs to be criminal under the British law uh, before extradition can go. So really, this law, uh, in order to be enforced, probably will kick in when that person travels to Hong Kong uh, or China. Bing Ling, Professor of Chinese Law at the University of Sydney there on the international implications of the new national security law for Hong Kong. You're listening to the BBC World Service and this is News Hour coming to you live from our studios in central London with James Kamarasamy. Coming up later on in the programme, we'll take a historical look at the impact of black culture and especially black music on US politics. Mother, 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 there's far too many of you crying. Brother, 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 there's far too many of us dying. Picket signs, you know, don't punish me with brutality. I mean, think about it. Those words are powerful. And the sad part about it, not only are they powerful, but they're still relevant. The headlines at this hour. The British Health Secretary has said he will give the National Health Service the money it needs after the most challenging year in the institution's history. Almost 200 staff have died during the coronavirus pandemic. And the authorities in South Africa's most populous province want to reimpose a lockdown after a spike in infections. You're listening to the BBC World Service. This is News Hour, coming to you live from London with James Kamarasamy. Large parts of England's hospitality sector reopened on Saturday, but pubs and restaurants remained stubbornly closed in one city. Leicester in the Midlands is back in a partial lockdown, the first local restriction of its kind in England because of a recent rise in the number of coronavirus cases. The UK's health secretary is Matt Hancock. Infections in Leicester were running at three times the rate of the next highest city. Now, in, in stopping that, the first priority is stopping the virus. But there are clearly also some other problems under the, under the radar that have been under the radar in the past in Leicester that need action. He was referring there to conditions inside the city's garment factories, which have been blamed in part for the rise in coronavirus infections. Dominic Muller is policy director with Labour Behind the Label. That's a UK campaign group uh, that is campaigning for garment workers' rights worldwide. They've been investigating conditions at factories in Leicester. 
Well, actually, our recent report is is really a continuation of long-term research, which has shown, you know, over the last decade, time and time again, reports of really low pay, sort of half the minimum wage, poor working conditions, a lot of sort of pressure, and then reports of modern slavery. The recent allegations, they still concern that, but with the added danger of the issue of exposure to COVID. Uh, So what we found was that workers reported being pressurised into work, even when they were feeling sick or when they wanted to isolate or shield vulnerable workers. Workers were denied proper furlough pay or denied wages and were told to, you know, either come into work or basically lose their jobs. So economic pressure to continue work? Working even if they felt ill or were worried about being there. And, and once they were inside the factories, no possibility of social distancing, for example. Exactly. I mean, many of these factories are very small. They're in often run-down buildings, very little ventilation. What we found increasingly is that the windows are blocked up, so people can't see what's going on, which, which really means there's a stuffy environment. The workers are stuck there for the whole of their shift. There's no way that those factories can do so social distancing. And what we've also heard is that the factories are operating pretty much at 100% capacity, if not more. So there's been a big boom in orders. There will be the usual amount of workers in there rather than a much lesser amount in order to social distance. Now, there's one particular brand, isn't there, I think, that that you've investigated that, that has done well during the pandemic because of online sales. Just tell us about Boohoo and how they fit into this. Yes, well, Boohoo is pretty much the largest buyer in Leicester, and they've really seen their profits soar in the last few months uh, as they've been able to keep on operating, unlike a lot of the bricks and mortar stores. So we've heard of a lot of more orders, increased production, pressure to finish orders very quickly, which means that factories are operating at 110%. And and with Boohoo, I mean, Boohoo have been in the news many times with over issues around their purchasing practices. So ordering very small amounts, but very quick turnaround. So very much a fast fashion model. And their pricing is such that suppliers, you know, often they can't afford with the prices that they have been given to pay a decent wage. The suppliers need the work. They take the orders. The workers need the work. They go to work. It's a sort of a vicious circle. And, and you've put your findings to Boohoo, have you? What, what have they said? We actually sent the report to them shortly before publication and I haven't had a response. I've seen their statements in various news medias and I've seen it on their website. On the one hand, Boohoo have said that our report is inaccurate. On the other, they have said that they will investigate the claims. And I think really the next question is how are they going to investigate? I mean, they say that they have been auditing. They say they have been going into factories. But, you know, I'm not sure whether this has been happening all along or whether this has really just started. That was Dominic Muller, Policy Director with the British campaign group Labour Behind the Label. Now, a new literary research project in Spain, backed by the European Research Council, is trying to recover women's writing from around Europe, which has not been recorded in academic study. Before the coronavirus lockdown, our reporter Tim Smith joined the team looking for these lost literary gems. I'm walking through the courtyard of the Library of Catalonia to meet Carme Font Paz, lecturer in English literature at the Autonomous University of Barcelona. She's also the leader of a new research project called Women's Invisible Ink. The aim of the project is to rescue lost women's writing from the 16th to 18th centuries 
much of which has gone ignored, forgotten or unrecorded. Many libraries, smaller ones, university libraries, private collections, many of these are not catalogued and you actually have to go to the place and search for it. And so we are sure that we will find some writers here who have not been located in later editions. Carme is here with her team of researchers. And one of her team, Maxime Rigaud, thinks he's found something. To let you show this book, which is by the famous male writer Lope de Vega. It's called Relación de las Fiestas. While there are a lot of male writers in the book, we can also see some women participating in it. We can see Doña Antonia de Nevarez wrote Redondillas. Moses's divine burning bush is ablaze but doesn't burn. Why do you run after the fire, however far away it goes? How, with haughty courage, without opposing resistance, you die for dying when your love is so alive. And if reason warns with its foreknowledge, you create death from life by bringing life to death. Why is this important? Well, these festivity books had an important function in society. And it's interesting that women could add their own perspective to the celebrations of, for example, saints. Carme and her team have unearthed many texts like this one, which she says challenge our views on how women contributed to our culture. We are interested in actually changing the perception that we have of early modern literature. And this perception is that women wrote about subjects that were not necessarily of major interest or we tend to think that that they just wrote for entertainment and we want to change this perception because this is not a real or a faithful picture of what women contributed in the history of literature and the history of thought. These poems and these letters actually are engaged in either metaphysical questions or domesticity for example or politics or they offer commentary about current events or moral questions, or fantasy, or science, or medicine. We tend to think that women imitated men, but we sometimes overlook the fact that many men relied on women's sources to produce their own texts. The job of the Women's Invisible Ink Project doesn't end at this search for forgotten manuscripts in dusty libraries. Education and dissemination of the research is a key part of the programme. Before COVID-19 closed down on-campus learning, Carmen and her team were giving regular classroom seminars on their findings. Arlette is one of those attending. She's in the second year of her undergraduate course, and she says she's fed up with the way the study of literature is traditionally taught. We keep studying the main authors like Shelley, Keats, I don't know, Wordsworth, and we mention the female writers to look a bit more progressive maybe, but then we don't study them. Even though I, they, they told me it's easy to read them. I mean, you can, you can just type it on the internet and find them. I'm doing English and French studies, and I'm also interested in the figure of Olam de Gouges, who did the Declaration of Rights of Women, which when I studied the French Revolution at school, they didn't tell us that a woman wrote this. And also, she was against slavery. I mean, why don't we learn this? Arlette, a student at the Autonomous University of Barcelona, ending that report by Tim Smith. You're listening to News Hour from the BBC.
Welcome back to News Now. In a moment, it is president versus president in Ukraine. First, so that great English institution, the pub, awoke from hibernation on Saturday after the government allowed places that offer hospitality, including pubs and restaurants, to reopen. More than 44,000 people have died with COVID-19 in the UK. That's one of the highest death tolls in the world. And many drinkers here are nervous about returning to their local. But others did embrace a new possibility of a night on the town lubricated with their favourite beverage. Let's get the view now from two English cities, from two of my colleagues, Pete Simpson in Bristol, followed by Paddy O'Connell here in London. Stella Ring. I am a regular and I've worked, I used to work here on and off for six years. How have the last sort of three or four months been? Well, it's not been fun. I'm not, that's, that's what it is, not been fun. There will be li- people listening to this, though, who think you're insane going out to the pub, people congregating I know, I, together. I had this problem with my family. And they said it's not a good idea, you shouldn't be going out to the pub. But I said, before we get the second wave, let's just enjoy it for a minute. <laughs> Hi, I'm Ewan Campbell. I've run the Shakespeare in Tottenham. I think the weather's put off a lot of people. Actually, everyone's kind of responsible, really. We've had a few... After they've had a few out the front, of like, no, come on, guys, the metre distance, at least two metres, come on. But they've been quite nice, to be honest. They've been pleasant. Boris decided to open the pubs for my birthday. <laughs> Happy birthday. <laughs> Thank you. I'm out with my two brothers and my two best friends. If there were loads of people coughing and running around and being crazy, then I'd probably be a bit worried. But I'm in a social circle of friends that have kept their social distancing, and I don't see a problem with it. Bristol might not be back to full capacity, but that hasn't stopped some from making an extra effort to experience a night out once again. I have come from Wales, from Cardiff, because I need the freedom, I need to meet new people and I need to have a good time. We did plan to go to a restaurant, we've already called to cancel, so that means drink on, doesn't it? There are hundreds of people on the streets around me here are not social distancing. There's hardly a mask. We are looking at the police wandering around, they don't have masks on either and there's a sort of rousing spirit of good times and I'm going to ask a few people what night they're having. (laughs) She's very excited, let's just see what she's excited about. I think it's so good that we've all (laughs) (laughs) we're all together and that love is love. You're the only man in this road wearing a mask. Oh, there's a few. Because, two of my friends are wearing a mask. Because love is but love. It's because, one, I've got asthma. And two, I want to be here, but I don't trust the world enough. Like, me, me and my mum, we both caught it because she worked in the NHS. I mean, thankfully, we didn't, we, it wasn't that severe. This is the moment that they said, you can go drinking, but be careful. Do you think these people are being careful? Do you think you're watching history? Um... I'm watching a history of mistakes, if that makes sense. I'm watching people make a mistake, but I'm also part of the problem. And uh, the reflections of some uh, pub goers in London there with Paddy O'Connell and in Bristol with Pete Simpson. You're listening to News Hour. This is the BBC World Service and you are tuned to NewsHour, coming to you live from London with James Kamarasamy. It's just over a year since Ukrainians elected a politically inexperienced TV comedian, Volodymyr Zelensky, as their president by a landslide. He promised change, primarily to an end to corruption and an end to the fighting with Russian-backed separatists in the eastern Donbass region. 
But despite some early successes, things have not panned out as many had hoped. Mr Zelensky was dragged into the scandal, which led to President Trump's impeachment. The war in the East drags on, and in recent months he has replaced many of the reform-minded officials that he brought into power. And now the man that he beat in last year's election, Petro Poroshenko, is accusing his successor of waging a battle against him in the courts out of a desire for revenge. Mr Poroshenko also says there are pro-Russian sympathisers among the current president's advisers. He's been speaking to our Kiev correspondent, Jonah Fisher. Petro Poroshenko. Just over a year ago, Petro Poroshenko was Ukraine's president, leading his country's fight against Russian-backed rebels. This week, he was marching with his supporters through central Kiev to court, and he could be on his way to jail. Since leaving office, Mr Poroshenko has faced a barrage of investigations. His now regular court appearances have turned into rallies. This script was written in the Kremlin, he tells his supporters. Petro Poroshenko's message is that this is a politically motivated prosecution backed by the man who defeated him in last year's presidential election, the former comedian Vladimir Zelensky. This is a revenge. This is a revenge of unexperienced politician. I met up with Mr Poroshenko at the headquarters of his political party, European Solidarity. I asked him if he now regretted the deeply personal nature of last year's election campaign, and in particular his campaign posters that suggested that a vote for Mr Zelensky was effectively a vote for Russia's president, Vladimir Putin. I was one of the most happiest person in the world if I was wrong. But unfortunately, this is true. The fifth column of Russian Federation are now playing a very important role in Ukraine. What you're saying is extremely damning, potentially destabilizing for this country to say that Ukraine's president is effectively Putin's man. I'm not saying that the Ukrainian president is a Putin man. Never. I'm saying that he is quite unexperienced. And his team, who is consistent, of one of the persons who was in uh, Russia five years, uh, all five years of my presidency, definitely played a very negative role. The irony is that Mr Poroshenko had five years in charge and could have tried much harder to reform the rotten justice system that now pursues him. Instead, he must contend with more than 20 investigations on subjects varying from the legality of his appointments to the tax status of his paintings. Mikhailo Zhenikov is a campaigner for judicial reform and no fan of Mr Poroshenko. So there's definitely things that should be investigated about Poroshenko, I believe, and, and the experts believe, but the charges that are now pressed against him are just ridiculous. There's no grounds, there's no evidence. There's clearly political persecution going on and not a clear and an objective investigation. News of Mr Poroshenko's predicament hasn't gone down well across Europe. The last few weeks have seen pointed statements of concern being made by Ukraine's friends. So far, President Zelensky, supposedly a reformer, has discovered a newfound confidence in the integrity of Ukrainian justice. Denis Smigal, 
is his prime minister. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, agreed with you that it looks not so good, but I'm sure that every person who uh, made uh, something bad, who violated the law, uh, should be uh, responsible for this. And uh, I'm not happy that it happens in Ukraine, but I'm sure that uh, responsibility should be in any case, in any way, for any person. By encouraging the pursuit of his predecessor, President Zelensky is taking a gamble. A few months ago, a defeated Petro Poroshenko was in the political wilderness. Now he's back and centre stage. Jonah Fisher reporting from Kiev. Well, if uh, Ukraine is uh, facing new turbulence, Russia at least appears set for another 16 years of stability, at least when it comes to its leader. Officially, 78% of Russians have just backed more than 200 changes to the country's constitution in a week-long referendum. They were rather nudged in that direction by a concerted yes campaign from the Kremlin. Of those changes, much of the focus has been on the one which resets a presidential timetable, allowing Vladimir Putin to remain in office until 2036, should he wish to. Uh, We'll discuss the implications of this in a moment. First, let's hear from a supporter of the changes. Uh, She's in Crimea, the peninsula that Russia annexed from Ukraine six years ago after another internationally unrecognised referendum. Tatiana Zizak is a tour guide in the city of Sevastopol. So why did she vote in favour of the constitutional changes? Personally, for me, the most important changes were the introduction of the existence of God, also to stress the family values. Also, it was very important to protect the border of the Russian Federation, as it is now. So, in other words, the kind of conservative values that you espouse, you felt it was important that they were written into the Russian constitution? Yeah, we think, all of us think so. It's very important for us to follow our heritage and to stick to family values. So those values were important to you. And also you talked about the borders. In other words, Crimea, where you are living and have lived, you are keen that it remains part of Russia. Yeah, uh, it became a part of Russia in 1783. And since that time, it has always been a part of Russia, except the short period after the dissolution of the Soviet Union. What about the question of President Putin himself and how long he can remain in office? These changes allow him to to stay until 2036. Was that important to you? (laughs) So it's very good that you say he can stay, but it doesn't mean that he must stay or he will stay. Do you agree with me? I, I, I agree. It, yeah, absolutely. It, it, it's, it's, yeah. it's his decision, yeah, I, I guess, why. now whether to stand or not. But the, the reforms do give him that possibility. Was that important for you that he has that possibility? Yeah, I think it's very good because we believe him and we see him as a strong politician who stands for Russian interests. And he has very high ratings in our country. But he's so unpredictable 
that there may be another shake-up in the whole world. Who knows what he is going to do next? Ah, so you, you don't necessarily think that he will make use of this new ability he has to remain in power? Yeah, yeah. I remember when the term of presidency is coming to an end. In English, it is called the lame duck. Am I right? You are right. Yeah, that's why Putin now stands in his very strong positions, because everyone believes he will be the president in Russia. Tatiana Zizak, tour guide in Sevastopol. Well, let's discuss the implications of the referendum. We're joined now by Mark Galliotti, Professor of Russian Politics at University College London. Uh, welcome to the programme, Mark. I just wonder what you make of what uh, that voter in Crimea said, especially that last point when she uh, said that, uh, you know, Putin uh, doesn't want to be a lame duck. That's what's behind all of this, not necessarily that he wants to stay in power till 2036, that he just doesn't want uh, people either inside or outside Russia to think that he might actually be staying stepping down in a couple of years. Absolutely. And if you just roll back to a year ago, and this was the consuming passion of the Moscow political and chattering classes. Everyone was talking exactly about this whole issue of 2024 when his current term ends. And he's made it very, very clear that uh, he absolutely regarded this as a distraction and he wants people to get back to work. And as Mazizak said, I mean, This is about giving Putin options as much as anything else. Putin is not the kind of person who creates long-term complex plans and feels absolutely locked to them. He basically likes to create opportunities for himself so that in a year, in two years, in four years' time, he can make the relevant decision then. And on the face of it, what he's managed to do then with this referendum would appear to put him in a position of strength. You've though, written a column in The Spectator magazine saying Putin's referendum rigging is a sign of weakness. Tell us about your conclusions. Well, again, I think it's because of how things have changed this year. I mean, if you, again, if you look at the beginning of this year when they actually planned this vote, uh, there was going to be the big internationally regarded celebrations of the end of World War II. There was meant to be Xi Jinping and Macron there. And then there was going to be this vote and there was no question but that uh, the majority of the population would back it. So it would be more or less a, a plebiscitary coronation. Then, of course, coronavirus came through. And I think that they decided, frankly, they were spooked. They decided to push the vote back, but only by a little bit of time, because it became clear that actually Russia is probably in for a long and possibly quite uh, nasty uh, struggle with, with the virus. And so in order to get the vote he wanted, they had to, yes, use vast amounts of propaganda, but also when it comes down to it, rig it. I mean, there's some preliminary statistical modeling suggests that this was even more rigged than the last presidential election. And people are noticing that. And so in order to get his vote... I think he's had to, in a way, break the unwritten rules of the Russian system, been too blatant in essentially manipulating the result. What is the impact of that, though? Does it does it help the opposition? Well, I mean, the problem is there is no real opposition. There, there are the sort of the, the fake political parties, and then there are various different individuals out in the margins. I think more than anything else, this is not going to bring Putin down. This is not going to bring mobs out onto the streets or anything like that. It is about the slow decline in legitimacy of the system. In some ways, this is a little bit, and 
It's a very, very broad parallel. A little bit like what happened to the Soviet Union in the later 70s. That sense of things grinding down, that in fact the leadership is no longer really in charge. Putin's own approval ratings are steadily falling, still at levels that most Western politicians would happily gnaw their own arm off. But nonetheless, by the standards of the kind of stratospheric ratings that Putin had enjoyed, low. And more to the point, the trend is that. So I think this is this, is this sense that actually we are in what we might think of as late Putinism. A stag- lost stagnant stagnant Putinism then, if you join the parallels. Absolutely, yeah, quite. Um, you know, so again, we shouldn't assume that uh, history is in any way a predictor. Um, but nonetheless, I think there is this growing sense, even within the elite, that actually Putin today is not the Putin of 20 years ago, Mark. and the needs of today are not the same as the needs of 20 years ago. Mark Galliotti, thanks very much indeed. You're listening to News Hour from the BBC. A reminder of our top story this hour, President Trump has used his Independence Day address to renew his attack on what he calls the radical left, which he accuses of trying to destroy history. Dr. Leslie Vinjamuri of Chatham House International Affairs Think Tank told us his tone was very different to that of previous July the 4th presidential addresses, which usually call for unity. The speech at Mount Rushmore and in Washington by the president were packed with division and really going back in some ways to the very beginning of his presidency when he talked about American carnage. The difference then, of course, was that the president was really targeting immigrants from Mexico, talking about building his wall. And now he's trying to pit Americans against Americans. It's not what we've ever seen before on July 4th from a president. One more headline. The British Health Secretary has said he will give the National Health Service the money it needs after the most challenging year in the institution's history. You're listening to News Hour from the BBC World Service. We're going to end where we began with American politics and whether or not Kanye West's overnight announcement that he plans to run for president turns out to be nothing more than a publicity stunt. Black music and culture is having a political moment in the wake of George Floyd's killing and the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement. At last weekend's Black Entertainment Television Awards, Beyonce urged African-Americans to take part in this year's election. She said, vote like our life depends on it because it does. And she was far from the only artist who used that occasion to make a political point. The BBC's former North America editor, Mark Mardell, has been taking a historical look at the impact of black culture on US politics. See, everyone gets a game piece, but what does yours say? Well, mine says, I'm a black man born in America. You gotta be the voice for the black people in your household. And they have to start today. If you like black culture, if you have black friends, then this is your fight too. What I've seen is something we haven't seen in this country. Terence Blanchard has written the score for 17 of Spike Lee's movies and is a trumpeter of renown. He says this is a moment for optimism or at least faith. Young people from all different walks of life out there fighting for what's right. Nobody's born racist, man. It's something you learn. Fighting for what's just. At the same time, throughout every industry here, people are being called out for their biases. You know, we've seen it in sports, we've seen it in merchandising, you know, we've seen it all over the place. So let's hope we see it in legislation. But we have been here before. This is hardly the first time change has been in the air. 1963, the March on Washington, at the height of the civil rights movement, a demand for an end to segregation and discrimination. And one of the most powerful speeches 
the world has ever heard. At this time, I have the honor to present to you the moral leader of our nation, Dr. Martin Luther King. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. And some of the most powerful music, too, bringing protesters black and white together. 22-year-old Bob Dylan was on the platform. But it was Peter, Paul and Mary who sang the Dylan song, the protest movement that made its own. The crowd linked together, swaying, hands held aloft. Someone not there that day was struck by the power of that song, Sam Cooke. Sam Cooke was inspired. He said, from now on, it's not going to be about how pretty the voice is. It's going to be about believing the voice is telling the truth. Full of admiration, but stung perhaps, that this anthem was written by a white folk singer. He was about to write one of his own, which has stood the test of time. I was born by the river in a little tent. Sam Cooke was welcome at Betty's parents' joint. Not so when he arrived at a motel in Shreveport, Louisiana. Wonderful. He and his band had made reservations, but when they arrived, the desk clerk took one look at them and said, no vacancies. He protested. His wife told him to quieten down. They'll kill you. They ain't going to kill me because I'm Sam Cooke. His wife replied, no, to them, you're just another. Well, you know. They didn't kill him, but they did arrest him. It fueled his determination to write a song of hope. Keep telling me don't hang around. It's been a long, a long time coming, but I know a change gonna come. Oh, yes, it will. The music of the civil rights era did bring people together, but has a more recent revolution in music won new hearts and minds. This is America. Don't get you slipping now. It's not just that black artists from Beyonce to Kendrick Lamar are part of the American mainstream culture now. It's that their very political concerns are central. I want to dedicate this award to all of my brothers out there, all of my sisters out there inspiring me, marching and fighting for change. Surely that must have an impact on a young white audience. Terence Blanchard is not convinced how deep this goes. He wrote the score for Black Klansman, Malcolm X and Spike Lee's latest film, The Five Bloods. And sitting alongside his music in the film, this song. Marvin Gaye's What's Going On was written after one of the four tops told the story of seeing, from his tour bus, anti-war protesters attacked by police. Terence says, people hear the melody of our plight without knowing what the words mean for us. Yeah, that is a metaphor. Mother, 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 there's far too many of you crying. Brother, 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 there's far too many of us dying. Picket signs, you know, don't punish me with brutality. I mean, think about it. Those words are powerful. And the sad part about it, not only are they powerful, but they're still relevant. That's the sad part. 
it's funny because I was just on a Zoom call a couple of days ago with a friend of mine who's a film executive, and he was just talking about the movie. You know, he said, man, and he's a little older than me, and he goes, man, I've been loving that song for years, and I've danced to it, and he said, but man, when I watched the movie, I had the subtitles on, and it hit me what the words really meant. And I had to tell him, I said, look, dude, you're describing exactly what I've been talking about. And he's a well-meaning dude, a guy with a good heart, not a malicious bone in his body, but it's conditioning. It's the way you're brought up. It's hard to fight that, but that's where the battle lies at the core of your belief system. You know, no matter how well-meaning they are, when they leave any protest or when they leave any situation, they go home to a situation that has none of that oppression. It's just the reality. Those protesters will leave a protest and be on the highway and won't have to worry about the police misjudging them. I'm a young black man. <sighs> yeah, I mean, it's um, it's such an interesting thing to think that, you know, doing all that I can. I could walk the streets and be mistaken for somebody who's up to no good. And that was Mark Mardell reporting there on the role that black music has played in politics in the United States. And uh, it is the latest of Mark's reports. You can hear the last one in his series on the late edition of NewsHour today. I'll be presenting that as well. But uh, for the moment, from me, James Kamara Sami, and the rest of the team here in London. Thanks very much for listening. Goodbye. Hour has been a download from the BBC. To discover more and our terms of use, visit bbc.com/podcasts.